So what 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 does it mean, Tim? What does it all mean? The the, oh, the well, sofa on the salt plate. You'll you'll have to read the book. I read it. What are you supposed to do that before this interview? <laughs> no, Dave read God, the whole I thing, and I, I read quality of there. interviewers these days. Well, yeah, <laughs> guilty as charged. To Sustainable 215. Welcome yourself to Sustainable 215, my splendid, sturdy fellow. Did you see that Brentford got promoted? Did you notice that all? It's been a good year for Babble football teams, hasn't it? It has! Bloody hell! Congratulations. Thank you very much. How are yes, you? How, how are the celebrations? Uh, substantial and extended. Excellent. Yes, no, it's good they, fun. As they should be. But this is not a football podcast. This is a podcast about the environment. It's called Sustainable. It's about people and the planet. And why, despite things being nosed, we can still have a think and a chuckle about it every now and then. Yes? Yes. And what, and to whom about what, are we going to be having a chuckle and a think this week? Oh, we are having a chuckle and a think with someone seriously eminent and clever and qualified. Mm. I would argue overqualified. Uh, well, certainly to be on this podcast, but no, it is. It's, it, we've had some big brains, but I'm not sure we've had a bigger brain than this dude. This is Tim Jackson, who is a professor of ecological economics. Economics? 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 economics. <laughs> See, he's, he's so clever, he doesn't even call economics economics. He calls them economics, and that's <laughs> almost true. And he's a professor of ecological economics at Surrey University, and he's got degrees in all sorts of things from mathematics, philosophy, and he's got PhDs, and, and uh, he's, just, he's just a big brain. But importantly, he's written a book which doesn't require big brains to read them. He's written a fantastic new book called Post Growth, Life After Capitalism. And we are going to talk to him all about that. Just the usual disclaimers. These are very much our own views. Uh, Indeed, Tim's views and Dave's views and my views. So if you've got any problems with anything we say, if you you have a growing rage uh, at anything we say, take it up directly with us. Not with the people for whom we work, which are environment charities in the case of me and Dave. Why did you do that the wrong way around? That doesn't matter. Um, Mm -hmm. Yes, the other disclaimer being, well, it's not a disclaimer, it's an appeal to your better nature. Now, as we're about to discuss, money is bad and growth is awful. However, money is needed... Which is why you should get rid of your money and give it to us. (laughs) Exactly. Money is unfortunately needed to pay for both the running costs and the general upkeep of Dave and Ol and the podcast. And so if you like what you hear, please join those people who chuck in a few quid a month on Patreon, www.patreon.com slash sustainababble where you can help fund the ongoing splendour of the babble. And we can have more interviews with more clever people who tell us about why giving money to things is bad. Yes? Absolutely. Right. This is our interview, and we began by saying to Tim, help us, we are sick. Why is growth so bad? (laughs) 
Right, Tim, going to level with you. Um, I'm not an economics professor. Um, I can confirm Ol is not an economics professor. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, would it Would it, uh, would it? it surprise you to know that I'm not either? Oh, was... That would that would at this stage be a surprise. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's true. it happens to be true. I'm an accidental economist. Um, and I think my chair is called Sustainable Development. I, I run a research centre which called, talks about sustainable prosperity. I've worked as an economist for about 35 years, but I'm not actually a professor of eco- economics. You're a fraud. Ah. You're a fraud. How I did am. you get I in am. the door? I am. I, I don't, well, actually, to be honest, I'm not in the door. You know, if <laughs> not even in the door, right? I'm, <laughs> <in, laughs> I'm not. I've never been in the door, and and you know, if they if I'm ever found in the door, then they they try and eject me as fast as they can. <laughs> well, you're welcome. You're welcome here. Like it's oh, everyone so is nice. welcome. You know, we haven't got any bouncers on the door or anything. Um, yeah, yeah. And I, I would put it to you that relative to us, you are a professor of economics. Oh, okay. Yeah. If there's a scheme that has a, a, a slight as a professor of economics at one side and yeah. us at the other. Relative yeah. to my cat, I'm a professor of economics. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Well, for the for, for yeah. the benefit of your cat and us, um, and I'm sorry to begin with a question like this, but what what is wrong with economic growth? Why is economic growth so bad? Like, you know, explain it for cats and us. Cats. Well, you know, uh, it's... It's 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 kind of one of those things. I don't know that it's that hard to understand. I think it's harder to understand for for professors of economics than it is for cats. And and you know the, because basically we live on a finite planet. And so if the economy if the economy is growing, if it's growing at a constant rate each year, then it gets very very big very fast. And it's done that over the last you know 150 years at least. And that leads to more and more impact on the planet. And so you know the idea that that goes on forever. Actually, it's not, as I say, that difficult for people to understand, and, and most ordinary people kind of get it. And then, the, the, you know, the one comment that I really like about it was a, an economist called Kenneth Boulding who said, you know, any, anyone who thinks that economic, exponential economic growth can go on forever on a finite planet is either a madman or an economist. <laughs> and I, I mean, I think that's a bit rough on, on, on mad people myself, but it doesn't, economists don't come that well out of it either. And, and so, you know, it's a particular problem for economists because the way we think about economics, the way we think about the economy itself, the way we think about progress is that things, it's all about doing more, being busier, having more stuff, uh, things getting bigger. And and that just doesn't really work. You know, we don't see that model in nature anywhere. We don't really see it in other species. Things that are grow forever are typically sort of cancerous at the end of the day. And, and there's no reason why that should be any different for the planet. You know, if the economy is just getting bigger and bigger, the, and and I suppose you could also say, you know, there are other things as well, which is if if it's if your whole life is just about economic activity, and if you're just buying stuff in order to employ people to make more stuff, and that's all there is to life, it kind of turns out from psychology as well that's not a very good recipe for having a happy life. Um, you know, it's necessary up to a point. If you haven't got any food, you want a bit more food. If you haven't got decent housing, you want more housing. But after a certain point, the quality of our life is about our relationships and our family. And and we spend our whole time, you know, dragging them around the shops to buy them things to replace the fact that we haven't got any time to spend with them. And and that's that's what's wrong with economic growth. 
So there's a kind of environmental problem and a human problem. It's come to the human one in a bit, but does it have to be the case that economic growth equals planetary knackering? What happens if instead of yeah. all driving around and all using stuff, we are all spending money on loving each other and kittens? Well, yes. I mean, you know, I suppose that does take us to the, the, the psychological one pretty fast in a way, but let's let's not go there just yet. Let's talk about the um, you know, the kind of planetary one in a way first, because the big and this is this is, you know, the history of thinking about economic growth. And it's why Kenneth Boulding said what he said about economists, because economists think actually economic value is not the same thing as stuff. Economic value is whatever people will pay for it on free markets. And, you know, yeah, why couldn't they pay for the love of their cat on a free market if you thought that was the right thing to do in the economy? But they but they also think, and there is some logic to this. In fact, it's kind of where I started out, I suppose, in my career, that if, you, if you've got good technology, you can get over that fact that the economy is getting bigger um, because the impact on the planet isn't getting bigger. If you use things more efficiently, if you use different stuff, if you substitute renewable energy for fossil fuels, you can decarbonize your economy. You know, I started out working on that stuff um, a long time ago before even governments were that interested in working on it actually with with um, environmental groups and they were the only people thinking about it seriously and we showed something like i don't know 30 years ago or something that you could have a renewable energy economy without carbon at all and and so th that's a good thing obviously you can decarbonize your economy you can do things more efficiently um and you can go an awful long way with that technology but the thing about economic growth is it doesn't let it doesn't let you off the hook you know the economy is going bigger and bigger so you yes you've done things more efficiency efficiently but your efficiency has got a outrun scale this year next year every year and and not only have we never ever done that really at the global level but the speed at which we'd have to do it to meet our climate targets is enormous so yes there's a logic and yes there is even some sanity behind economists and that idea of economic growth um, but the prospect of being able to go on doing that forever and meet our climate targets and stop destroying the habitats of other species and stop making those species go extinct and stop polluting our oceans and stop using up resources that are going to run out, some of them in the matter of a few decades. That's the challenge. You know, are we really do we really think we can just go on doing that, doing that, doing that? And a really interesting thing recently for me is that actually, you know, some of the people uh, who have become our icons and our would-be saviours in the world, like Jeff Bezos and um, Elon Musk, actually are quite prepared to say openly now, yeah, you know, we can't go on growing forever. That's why we have to go to Mars. <laughs> yes, and, you know, yes. <laughs> We've run out of yes. planet Earth. But it's okay. Yeah, and we're not going to do anything about saving planet yeah. Earth. We're going to spend billions of dollars and get billions of NASA contracts by you know, scooping up, um, what's it called, Blue Moon or something, and then the Mars mission. And, you know, that's the way out for a few very, very rich people who are lucky enough to escape the chaos. Uh, that's the only way out of this conundrum. The planet is finer. And, and when you hear, you know, when you hear people like that saying things like that, you think, why does it take so long for everybody else, politicians in particular, and economists even more so, to catch up with that blindingly obvious? Jude, mate, what do you want to do tonight? 
The same thing we do every night, Pinky. Try to take over the world. Okay, so so that explanation sounds pretty straightforward to me. Like, I get it. Finite amount of stuff. Can't keep just using it and expect everything to be fine. So why why isn't everyone in agreement with that? Particularly, why aren't politicians in agreement with that? Because it's it's not the case, is it, that everyone, you know, David Cameron and Boris Johnson and whoever else has been in charge notionally the last period of time is going, it's all right, guys, we're going to stop economic growth. Like, that's that's not happening. That is not, that is <laughs> not what they are saying. That's yeah. my hot off the press political analysis for you. Uh, that's not happening. So why isn't it happening? Why hasn't, don't they get hasn't, it? Hasn't hasn't happened yet i i do i do have to admit that although and i don't on often get out to defend david cameron but he did at one point um actually quote robert kennedy's um speech from 1968 about the limitations of the gdp and he did it in defense of of building up a kind of idea of measuring well-being instead of economic growth, which in principle is actually a very good thing. It measures neither our wisdom nor our learning, neither our compassion nor our devotion to our country. It measures everything in short, except that which makes life worthwhile. I actually think that's a slight overstatement, but it was... Uh, he, um, he absolutely knew about it, and Tony Blair knew about it in 1997 or something like that. He talked about the limitations of the GDP and, you know, how growth wasn't all it was cracked up to be. We had to look after other things as well. And so there is, you know, surreptitiously, I think, politicians are beginning to beginning to think about, is, is this what we have to aim for? And you found, I mean, even 10 years ago, Sarkozy put in place a permission, a commission um, 12 years ago, probably longer than that, uh, 2008. So yeah, 13 years ago. And, uh, he, you know, he put President Sarkozy in France, put in, in place a commission that was d- specifically designed, uh, you know, are we measuring the wrong thing? Is progress really about GDP, which surreptitiously is a questioning of growth. And, and so, you know, I mean, you could say that probably anyway, for France, because growth was slowing down a bit. So they were a bit worried about whether they actually achieved the growth that would keep them in the G7. <laughs> and we're going to definitely be in that position quite soon if we're not careful. And so, you know, as, as, as growth becomes less accessible, politicians, I think, will slowly begin to, you know, wean themselves off it or find different things to measure and make themselves look better in ways which aren't necessarily about, you know, mine is bigger than yours kind of thing, which is which ultimately is one. You know, there's a very funny story when I when I wrote Prosperity Without Growth, which which I wrote for the Sustainable Development Commission back in 2009. And I went to Treasury to, to talk about the findings of the report before it was or just after I think it was launched, um, because that's one of the places you want to land thinking about the economy is in the Treasury. And, and and this advisor listened to me solidly for about 45 minutes without really asking any questions or saying very much. And then at the end, he said, you know, what's it going to feel like when I have to go to the G7 meetings and our GDP has slipped down the rankings? It's as, as basic as that. Mm. This kind of almost is mine is bigger than yours. And, you know, I have to keep on growing it. But is that what is it? What is it? It can't just be willy waggling. It can't just be playground stuff. What are the sort of things yeah, that when no. you're part of that machine, what makes it in practice? Boris Johnson has to bang on about the economy. What is it in practice that does that? There, there, there are some reasons, and and you know, I'm being a bit unfair by talking about it like that. But but there is there's an interest. Interestingly, ultimately, in many cases, it does kind of come down to that. But you've got to say that if you've got nothing then having a bit more is a good thing. So, you know, there's a point at which growth makes a lot of sense. 
And actually, if you look at the statistics, that shows up so clearly across the world that in the poorest countries in the world, as you increase the income in those countries, um, almost every measure of prosperity goes up. So your life expectancy goes up, your infant mortality comes down, maternal morbidity comes down, participant participation in education goes up, happiness goes up very fast. If you give poor people a little bit more income and their lives become more secure, their children are healthier, and, and it's not surprising that they're happier. So the, the, it, there's a point at which it makes sense, and that's where we started from, if you like. You know, we all started thinking, well, actually, there are lots of people without proper sewage, lots of people without proper homes, and it's a good idea to build those homes and, and build those sewage systems, and that is basically economic growth. So so that that's a point at which growth makes sense. And then, you know, the curious thing is, when you look at the statistics, and again, it's very, very clear after a certain point, that advantage of having a bit more income just tails off sometimes it even goes into reverse so you you find that there are countries that you know the richest countries in the world the uk the us ireland they've got uh lower life expectancy than countries like cuba and costa rica and chile which because oh, you've only... got more money to eat loads of cake right well that is one of the problems i mean you know that's a part of the system if you if you've got an economic system that insists on people having more and more and more you just think about food having more is good if you're starving but at a certain point when actually more people are dying from obesity than dying from undernutrition then it is just it's nuts it doesn't make any sense at all and and the system that we have the economic growth system and capitalism itself in some way just does not know where to stop you know it just goes on more and more please more and more please and and that's you know that's a kind of that's a kind of a part of the reason why we're locked into it but it's a hard sell to say the opposite isn't it it's a hard sell to say to either citizens or governments the way to save the planet is to have less because because we whatever the whatever the statistics say about our happiness plateauing or maybe even decreasing or our health plateauing and then decreasing beyond a certain point of wealth that's not how we, how anyone feels i presume because of the various institutions and and economic systems that we're kind of trapped in but you we all feel like we need just a tiny bit more and mm. so I guess what I'm asking is, is one of the reasons that these ideas haven't yet dominated the fact that it's it's just so difficult to sell because too many people don't want to hear the idea of having less? There's definitely a part of that. And then there's also, you know, what you're hinting at there is that there's, you know, we're, we're trapped in two different kinds of systems. So one is a system of, of enterprise in which, you know, if you don't grow... Uh, you don't satisfy your shareholders and they take their money elsewhere and then you can't survive. So, you know, then then you've gone, basically, a sort of a, almost like a, a logic of the jungle, in a sense, survival of the fittest kind of logic around the survival of the firm. And then uh, allied to that, you've got this, what you were sort of, again, referring to a sort of social logic that, um, you know, once... I remember a time when nobody had an iPhone, you know, and then some guy in my research team came along with with an iphone and you could touch it and you could you know make the picture bigger and we were all like what what the f 
like that. And then everybody <laughs> has to have one. And then everybody has to, you know, I've lost even count of, of the variations and of, of iPhones. And I, I've lost count of the time at which my kids overtook me in having the latest version of the iPhone. And I was on, I, I was just the old fart on the old technology who they didn't even have to respect anymore because I was so back in the day. And that, and that search, that pursuit of novelty, you know, it is, it, it does appeal to something in the human psyche. There's no doubt about that. You know, it's, it's funkier, it's sexier, it's, it's better adapted. It gives us more functionality. It's novelty is good. It's this bright, shiny thing that we all want. And, and, and it signals not just, you know, how important I am because I've got the latest gadget, but it also, it sort of signals the brightness of our future that, you know, how, how we can ha afford to have hope because everything's getting newer and novelty gives us that bright, shiny feeling about where we're going. So, so yeah, both of those things exist. And, and here's the, here's the kind of tricky thing, which is that they both sort of depend on each other. You know, the, 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 the hunger of the entrepreneur for innovation matches perfectly a little too perfectly i would say with our own you know almost insatiable desire for novelty and and that's a system in which you know we're actually kind of locked into growth we're, we're locked into that 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 endless spiral of the new and having more and, and and signaling everything you know even our social relationships and our our psychological health being signaled through material goods this phone's going to be like a precious jewel Ooh, i love that the headphone jack is going to be on the bottom i heard the connector is all digital what what does that even mean we don't always want novelty, though, do we? Like, sometimes we just want a nice cuddle and to stay inside. And I think it's one of the interesting things about being humans. Yes. You know, is, that, is that we're trying to balance that wanting the new and wanting to be... And cats, wanting to be as sane. it happens. <laughs> you know, I mean, when it comes to it, you know, I, I, I'm glad that you said that because, you know, that's where my narrative goes. And um, it's kind of, you know, it's always good when sort of people get there before you because it's true. It's, it's obviously, it's self-evidently true. Uh, that we, we're not just novelty-seeking hedonists. Well, see, actually, see the pandemic, right? See the early responses to the pandemic where suddenly this huge swell of compassionate, uh, compassionate values, community cohesion, people going out of their way to just help other people for no other reason than it was a good, kind thing to do and it strengthened the whole community. And that's all the stuff that we've been told that we're not like that's not what we do you know we are selfish beings and it turned well, out we're not you know listen my job is over you guys have got it covered really from here on because that's that is exactly <laughs> you know that is exactly the, the the point in a way is that we we were told that story about ourselves why were we told it because that was the story of ourselves that fitted with the idea of the consumer who would go on wanting more that would keep the system going that would allow you know um enterprise to to pursue its growth path so so it fits perfectly and you can actually even identify the points in time at which at which people did that you know there's a definitive point in time at which um advertisers created what Ernest Dichter called a science of desire, mm. you know, to connect our innate characteristics with the properties of consumer goods so that we would go on buying that stuff. And when we couldn't afford it, then, you know, they, they, they extended loans to us to do it. So, mm. you know, persuaded to spend money we don't have on things we don't need to create impressions that won't last on people we don't care about in the words of... Advertising is based on one thing, 
happiness. And you know what happiness is? Happiness is the smell of a new car. It's freedom from fear. It's a billboard on the side of the road that screams with reassurance that whatever you're doing, it's okay. And and that's you know that that's a, that's a part of the point is that it, that we constructed that value, that version of ourselves um, for the sake of keeping this economic system going in the way that it is. But you you know the the critical point is it doesn't sit well in the early days of the pandemic. Seven hundred fifty thousand, three quarters of a million people signed up to the community response teams for the NHS so that they could help people in their neighborhoods they weren't you know they weren't out there every day complaining they couldn't go shopping they were saying how can I help and you know that that really matters it matters to recognize that we're not just consumers and and you know the, the reality is that it's really only economics that thinks we are if you if you couldn't find that view anywhere else you couldn't find it with ordinary people on the street you couldn't find it in the wisdom traditions in the religions you couldn't find it in philosophy you can't find it in social psychology there's no real version of humanity that is the novelty seeking individualistic selfish hedonist that has to be the person that occupies the place of rational economic man your book what is called post-growth life after capitalism mm. done that um <laughs> your <you>. book <laughs> isn't uh what what i have read what is very very good i have to say um um, I'll talk about why I think it's good maybe in a minute, but it's not like it's not it's not an economics textbook. So no, that, and that's what I loved about it deliberately. Yeah, um, but what what I think the central argument of your book is is not we should end this system, but this system is ending itself. This system is done. This system is knackered. Is that fair? Would you say yeah, that's essentially yeah, what you're? I, I would say that. I mean, you know, interestingly, that's one of the reasons I think why why politicians even and certainly some economists are beginning to think you know, that growth isn't all it was cracked up to be because actually it's been getting slower, that rate of growth over, not just because of the financial crisis, not because of the pandemic, not because of the financial crisis, but actually over five decades, it's been getting, the rate of growth has been declining. And that's the point at which, you know, even in its own terms, a growth-based system is going to run into some very severe difficulties. Um, and, and then, of course, you know, there, there is, as well as that sort of primary economic sense, I think, and this is part of what the book is trying to do, is tease out the ways in which it kind of, you know, after a certain point begins undermining the quality of our lives. It begins undermining our social relationships. It begins undermining the environment, obviously. It begins undermining... Uh, our working environment it undermines the quality of and the security of people's livelihoods even when those people are the most important people in society so you know in the pandemic we found that was that was a huge object lesson from the pandemic who saved our f***ing lives it was the nurses it was the doctors it was the cleaners it was the supply chain workers the distribution workers and they were the people who had been 
undeniably sort of denigrated in society. Their mm-hmm. wages were hard to pay. The security of their jobs was difficult. They had more and more pressures in relation to productivity. And and yet they turned out to be the most important people in society. So who knew? Yeah, exactly. Who knew? And and then yeah. who forgot within a matter of months yeah. when it came to sort of deciding oh, on? I know, I know. Rishi Sunak forgot. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's right. He did. Yeah, but he even forgot. Matt Hancock forgot apparently, and <laughs> Boris Johnson forgot, and everybody forgot when it came to a you know a pay rise for nurses that you know if we paid nurses a little bit more, we couldn't pay ourselves a little bit more, and so politicians are obviously more important than nurses. So. You know that there's there's you can always there's a sort well, of Matt you Hancock know, has been uh, personally saving lives. He said as much, didn't he? He said he's he's saving. That's why that's why he can't come on our podcast. He's, he's saving he's lives. Busy. He's busy. You've asked him lives. on your podcast. No, of course we have. <laughs> I, I, I wish want to talk to him about. I kind of would like to have had a, a chat with Matt. Well, we'll, and, we'll, you know, we'll get about, him on then. Because you know one of my one of the themes in prosperity in post growth. Um, is is actually that you know at a certain point prosperity is more about health than wealth so you know if you think if you take that point seriously then actually the department of health becomes quite an important place in society i'm not saying we necessarily got the right person in charge there but you know it it is it is a kind of reflection on 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 the priorities that exist where actually the most important department in government is usually the treasury they hold the strings, they have the power, they decide who gets what. And then there's like a descending hierarchy of importance with environment at the bottom and health somewhere in the middle. Um, but actually, if you took all that seriously, you'd probably reverse that hierarchy. And Treasury could become actually, you know, what it ought to have been in the first place, which is kind of servant of the economy rather than the master of it. So, so I hear what you're saying, which is for environmental reasons in its own terms, because it's bad for people. There's all these reasons why this system is just beginning to look creaky and like it's not in our not in our interests. But that in itself, just saying that is not in itself uh, going to do anything about it. Right. So what 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 are the things that you. So, so, for example, a Green New Deal, people propose there should be a Green New Deal, which is about a big political project to invest in loads and loads and loads of green jobs uh, and fix poverty, save planet, everything fine, right? But that's got economic growth at the heart of it. But what, what do you think a kind of political project to do this looks like? I can talk about that. And in, in some ways, you know, I did talk about that in Prosperity Without Growth. And that's one of the reasons why I wrote Post Growth, I think. It's because I was talking about it for a decade. And, you know, there weren't that many people listening. Uh, actually, you know, we were advisors to the government when I wrote that report initially. And... Everywhere I went, in all the departments where we, we spoke about the work, after they got over the shock that we were going to question growth, they would sort of say, yeah, that's fine, Tim, but what are we going to do on Monday? You know, what, what, what are the policies? So Prosperity Without Growth had a whole bunch of policies, all kinds of things that we could do on Monday. You know, make sure that we're measuring the right things, establish the limits of the natural world, fix the economic incentives, because most of them are perverse, change the social logic, because it's nothing to do with the well-being of human beings. And I gave them a whole, you know, I gave them a longer list as well, lots and lots of things that you could do on Monday, you could begin to build on Monday. And and it was kind of, it was listening to that for, you know, listening to the the, the, the lack of response on that in a way for, for a decade that made me realise that actually you don't, you shouldn't, and we can't necessarily start 
with that policy list. We can, there is no silver bullet that can suddenly appear that every government is going to vote for that we can put in place tomorrow that will solve all our problems. So in a way, what Post Grace is trying to do is to say we have to have a bit of a, a longer look at the problem, the depth of the problem, where it's coming from, why we believe these things, what are the mm. things that we believe about ourselves or have been led to believe, and how do they match up to our reality? And then almost systematically through the different bits of the economy, you know, what work is like, what investment is like, what enterprise looks like, that we then have to kind of address those things, almost like unpacking them, taking them apart because they've they've not functional anymore and putting them back together as concepts in a way that makes sense. And that's kind of what Postgrace is trying to do. I mean, you said it's not really an economics textbook. I think of it as being an economics book as economics used to be written when people thought about the system, when they acknowledged that their work had kind of moral meaning as well as analytic equations, and when it related itself to the lives of ordinary people. So so in some sense, I think Postgres is trying to rescue economics as, as a discipline, as, a, as a, a place which is absolutely relevant to ordinary people. It's not you know, up there with the professors in the academic institutions that win the Nobel Prizes. It's how on earth do we want to live our lives and how should we organise that? And so what Postgres does, it tries to, you know, it tries to create that narrative and pull it apart and say, actually, if you think about these things and you put them back together in a different, more better constructed way, we could actually have better lives. We could have less inequality. We could have less environmental damage. And guess what? best of all actually our lives would be richer they they would have more time for relationship they would have more time for for learning skills they would have time to 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 earn the rewards of learning those skills by by developing actually situations objects tasks where we are more fulfilled as human beings than we could ever be shopping in a in a shopping mall <laughs> Get a haircut, hippie. <laughs> that draws us quite nicely onto a question about the human condition, because I think in the book you're you're arguing, as you are here, for a, for a, a kind of personal level reevaluation of of what we value, of what we care about, which I guess is you know a kind of some people might call that a, like almost a buddhist change in the things that we care about and strive for and what will make us happy but there's a lot of people that say oh hang on a minute we're just tr- by doing that all we're trying to do is kind of calm our responses over as build our resilience to a system that is going to carry on doing its thing and that system's got to be smashed and to smash that system We've got to be cross and confrontational and 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 organised. Um, do you think that's do you think that's fair? And if so, how do you kind of square that circle? Uh, yeah, that's a really interesting. That's a really interesting thought that you know, I haven't made people angry enough. Um, I think Jonathan Porritt called it a, a, a masterpiece of measured rage and love. Oh. And I, I think, you know, I think to me, those two things are quite important. So, you know, the love bit is important, but the rage bit is also got to be there to some extent. To, That's to the Extinction Rebellion kind of slogan, isn't it? Love and rage. Yeah, is, is, yeah. yeah. Civil, civil disobedience, you know, is the, is the outcome of rage. But, but the civil disobedience that sort of holds itself together with, with, with a concept of 
of love. You know, as you say, that's Extinction Rebellion's kind of raison d'etre. And I think it's very, I, don't, I think it's just very clever. I think it's very human, you know. I, but I also think that, I don't know, I'm going off piece here completely in my own mind what I think about this because I don't really know that, that rage and anger has its limits, you know. And I think actually rage and anger sometimes propagates itself for for a very very long time after the rage is gone and its damage is done and there's all you can do about it but generations later you know the sins of the fathers are visited on the children even unto the seventh generation you can tell i was brought up in a protestant <laughs> family and and that's you know there's some there's there's an element of truth in that there's an element of truth when we look at palestine there's an element of truth when we look at slavery there's an element of truth when we look almost all, all everywhere we look around us we actually it's like the pigeons are coming home to roost for, from things that were done wrong centuries ago sometimes. And, and we have to come to terms with those. And and I, I'm not convinced that the right way to come to terms with them is to get angry again um, and to allow that anger to, to overtake us, to go beyond the boundaries of what we can repair through love. I, I think those two things, you know, must inevitably tailor how we look at the world. And although Buddhism's kind of in there, so is civil disobedience and and the idea that you know the legitimacy of government disappears at the point at which they're not looking after the most vulnerable in society so much of the system is just ridiculous when you kind of step back from it and look at it as a thing right so the reason we do this podcast right is pointing out just some of the some of the contortions and double speak that people yeah. come up with uh, to try and justify why a thing that is patently a bad idea is a good idea yeah. right and do you do you catch yourself yeah. just on a very human level just laughing out loud at some of this stuff yeah i do i do i mean and sometimes laughter is all you can do you know one of my favorites is in the town where i live the 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 the, the diy store is situated next to uh, what's what's called the municipal recycling facility or something now. So, you know, the dump, basically, where people go and trash their stuff. And quite often on a Saturday, that's what you'll see. You'll see cars lining up down the road, you know, going first to go to the dump and then they go to the DIY store. But occasionally you go into the DIY store and you pick up that's so tooty, that is so designed to fall apart before you get it home, that it actually does fall apart when you get outside the store. And then you think, well, that's fine because the dump's just next door. So I can just... <laughs> Thing there, and it saves me another trip later. And you know, yeah, I've spent money. I'm a good citizen. I bought some stuff, and it's fallen apart as soon as it possibly can. So yeah, and you do. I, I do. I do think that. I I love the idea. There's comedy. There's these two guys, Australian comedians, um, Clark and Daw. One of them died recently, actually, which is a bit tragic. But they they had this comedy duo act, duo act where they kind of had a, you know, politician and and an interviewer interviewing the politician, role playing, obviously. And and there's one about growth, growth first, and and you know it's yeah, just classic. Nice. I don't need to I don't need to teach my students anymore. I just need to point them to YouTube and show tell them what to watch. And that's first up on my courses. I make them watch mm -hmm. that little video clip of two comedians lampooning the way that politicians talk about growth and can't even stop talking about it um, because they're so sort of obsessed with it. It was an economic forum, Brian. Growth was the message. Yeah, but you didn't expect other countries to sort of decrease the size of their... No, 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 Brian. The point I'm making is that there were a number of distractions and it was good that growth cut through. Distractions from what? From growth, Brian. 
Everything flows Everything from growth. Everything flows from growth. What we need to do is create jobs. You can't do that without growth. That, that is, is powerful, isn't it? I mean, you know, arguing, getting very cross and worked up and coming up with counter-arguments, obviously it's necessary a lot of the time. But actually, in terms of winning hearts and minds, it can be incredibly powerful to just laugh at someone. Because it, if you're saying they're silly rather yeah. than they're wrong, you know, it, it completely sort of punctures their authority, doesn't it? Yeah. I, I, I think it does. I mean, the thing that, you know, we're reaching deep into into what into the sort of psychology of change here. But I mean, one of the difficulties is that that if you laugh, you, you break the tension. If you break the tension, people feel better. If they feel better, they have less inclination mm. to act. So it, mm. it does it or yeah, doesn't fair. it. You know, it's fantastic to have that comedy. And if you could do it in public and really ridicule people, but even now, you know, we can ridicule people in the Houses of Parliament and they still don't leave. You know, they can do shameful <laughs> things and they still don't leave. On the whole, I kind of think that the path towards a lasting transition is something that we have to kind of feel our way towards with understanding and compassion. And, and, and yes, you know, laughing at things when they're absolutely stupid, laughing at ourselves is even better, I think, in some ways as a transformative act. Um, but And sometimes being out on the streets and sometimes saying it like it is, and, you know, sometimes being a 15-year-old schoolboy, schoolgirl who sits outside Parliament through the middle of winter um, and, and achieves a following of, of millions of people around the world, and sometimes, you know, going to our day jobs and doing the job as best we can and sometimes lobbying for change in in policy and sometimes thinking about the impact of our own lives and sometimes trying to understand ourselves as part of a system that is calling for change. And that's kind of, again, kind of what that journey was kind of something I was trying to indicate in post-growth. Sounds an awful lot like you're saying there isn't just one easy thing to do and magically fix the world, um, which which is a shame because it'd be handy. Yeah, I suppose. I suppose, but it's a bit unrealistic. I mean, in a way, I think the desire for some one single thing to fix things is a little bit like the desire for growth, you know. It's, it is the same. Yeah. It's like growth will fix it, you know, whatever it is. There's a line in that comedy thing, you know, I, the interviewer kind of says, but hang on a minute, isn't climate change caused by growth? Uh, and, the, and the politician says, I don't, I don't know what climate change is caused by, but it's certainly not caused by growth. And the interviewer says, well, growth will fix it, though. And he oh, yes, growth will fix it. <laughs> and it's like, you know, that'll be, that growth will fix it is... is you know, well, or, or or redistribution from the rich to the poor will fix it, or or basic income will fix it, yeah. or you know, what's you? Of course, you have to think through all those things, and you have to have every tool in the toolbox because you know everything is broken, or many things are broken, um, and and that to me is why you know it's not the job of of kind of one book or one policy or one mantra or one person or one group of people um and the responsibility for it kind of lies to some extent with all of us as well hi i'm arabella and you're listening to sustainable another opening another show as well as being exceptionally large-brained sort of professor of economics, you are a exceptionally large-brained, definite 
playwright and like writer and creative writer in general. And I was what's great for me about your book in particular is that it's it's really good storytelling. Really like it's about telling stories and saying not and telling stories about telling stories as well right yeah so like you know we need better stories and it really reminded me of Gaia by Lovelock who and because this that book's what 50 odd years old yeah now, something yeah. like that um when he sort of unashamedly said he wrote a book that was about something deeply scientific but unashamedly said this is a book that's got as much poetry in it as science and of course that meant that no one took him seriously and it took you know he then had to write another book about the scientific bits but like are you worried that by that a book that is about economics that doesn't kind of have much economics in it, or indeed any, will not get taken seriously? Or or do you actually feel that there's a different job to be done here about inspiring people in different ways? I, I do. I mean, you know, there's lots of economics. If, if anyone who reads post-growth feels there's not enough economics, they can go and look at some of my academic papers, and, and uh, or they could go back to Prosperity Without Growth. And I, I, I specifically felt that there was a different job to do. I mean, since it's come out, I have to say that I've had occasion to question that because there are lots of people, not lots of people, there are a few people who kind of say, you know, what's he been doing for 10 years? He wrote all this great stuff about growth in, back in the day and now he's writing about, you know, Buddhism and Lynn Margulis and Hannah Arendt and, and, and going under a bridge with a sailing boat. What's he talking about? Yeah. Oh, he's gone funny. He's, he's gone, gone off. Yeah, yeah. And, and there's some people like, and they say, you know, why didn't he write a boat? A, 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 there was one, I think, a, you know, critique somewhere that sort of said, why didn't he write a book about the Green New Deal? Well, there's lots of people writing books about the Green New Deal. I'm not saying the Green New Deal isn't something that we should think about and talk about because we obviously should. But AOC is doing that, you know, that's her thing. And so there's a space for lots of different things. And what Postgres is trying to do, and very deliberately, really, is to write a book for all the ordinary people who found themselves interested in prosperity without growth, but were not its audience. And so, you know, they were interested in this simple question about how we should live and where our society is going. And they forced themselves, bless them, to read, you know, all the charts and all the equations and all the numbers in Prosperity Without Growth and to grapple with this shit that economists love and policy makers, you know, even more so. And it wasn't writ- written for them. So, so I kind of thought I should write something for them, really. I'd, I'd slightly take, uh, take issue with the premise of your question, Dave, if I may. Um, first time for everything. Go on. Get <laughs> out, but go for it. Take first time for everything. But, See but like the Lovelock book uh, has been remembered, has been taken seriously. I mean, whether or not like serious, in inverted commas, serious economists at the time savaged it, I don't know. But the point is, it's one of the ones that we remember. Yeah, yeah. And I'm sure there have been countless very serious, very, as you say, Tim, very kind of graph-heavy books in the meantime that haven't actually told a fundamental story and sold a big idea about how we perceive ourselves and of this this organism that we live on and is our only home. So I don't know. I think mm. I don't think we should un- underplay the power of these these big stories. No, I think I think they're very powerful, and and also you know you could just Rachel Carson's Silent Spring, um, mm. in a sense, a book that was as poetic as it was anything else that sparked almost everything that you guys and I have done in our pre- professional lives. You know, there, there wouldn't be well, somebody else might have written something and it would have sparked in a different way, but that was such a, a momentous point in time, 1962, uh, that created the modern 
environmental movement and and it was basically a piece of poetry um you know it had it had science in it it had facts in it it had the damage that we're creating the world in it but it it conveyed a story that people could understand that lots of people could understand can i ask a um a very silly question but i do want to know the answer <laughs> The front cover of your book, right? Oh, okay, <laughs> Sorry about this. <laughs> lovely, lovely setting. Yeah. Looks like, a, okay. I don't know, is that a sort of salt plains in, in Nevada or something? And then is it... Oh, my God. That's really... You've done your research, mate. That's, I haven't. I, I haven't. Think it, I think it is, Trust actually. me. <laughs> Trust is. me, I haven't. Uh, <laughs> it would yeah. be a first. But, no, that wouldn't be this show, would it? <laughs> no, exactly. Thank you. Uh, but that's what it looks like. And then, it, then there's a great big... Sofa, you know the sofa in Men Behaving Badly. It reminded me of that. Oh, good sofa. Um, yeah. mm. A bit posher than that, actually. Oh, it reminded me of the sofa on Bedeal and Skinner. It's very interesting. The original picture, that sofa, is a lot more tatty than it is on the cover of my book. I didn't ask them to clean it up, but it's really interesting. I found the original picture, and the original picture has a bit of the fabric falling away at the bottom, <laughs> and you can sort of see, you know, it's much older and messier than it looks on the cover of the book. I kind of wish they kept it in a way. So what 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 does it mean, Tim? What does it all mean? The the, oh, the well, sofa on the salt plains. You'll you'll have to read the book. I read it. Were you supposed to do that before this interview? <laughs> no, Dave read God, the whole I thing, and I, I read the quality of interviewers these days. Uh, I it, it's, yeah. it was <laughs> kind of I don't, the what I guess what I guess what. You know, I didn't personally choose it. We, oh, I did. I did okay it, to be honest. Um, we had, you know, we had we had some wonderful uh, ideas for the cover. We had these roots with green shoot, dead roots with green shoots coming out of them, and you know, mirrors with ornate edges and stuff like that. And mm. and this one, we just kept coming back to this one. And I don't really know what it means. It conveys, I think, for me, it kind of conveys, you know, a place where you could where you could sit and you could think in a you know without the pressure of the of the hectic rush of the everyday world around you enjoying the the feel of the air and the you know distant sound of whatever salt lake does or doesn't have and 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 think you know for, for me it's a kind of place of contemplation i suppose but i think it probably means different things to different people it probably meant something different to the publishers but it it was kind of it had this sort of inviting quality to it i i think we felt and and it and it had the, the sort of you know it's not it, it wasn't about suggesting that post growth all our lakes will be littered with defunct sofas but it was sort of saying that there's a you know there's a there's a there's a synthesis to be had between us as people who sit and think and the world in which we sit and think and the objects that create that world and and yeah i guess i guess i haven't answered your question at all really no you you have (laughs) um i I spent some of the time when you were answering trying to think of a good sofa pun and the best i could come up with was was so far so so good good, yeah oh yeah Um, that that is actually i've you've rumbled us that was what it is yeah (laughs) That's, that was the meaning of it. But it did, I, as you were explaining it, I thought, oh, hang on a minute. All of the books I've seen and all of the reports I've seen that have tried to kind of illustrate 
a what what the the kind of clean safe future will look like you know it's always like packed full of wind turbines and like whizzy electric cars and people looking happy in cities that have been designed better and you know mm. efficient working and all, all the rest of it and it's not that is it it's actually what it, it does do a good job of conveying what your book about which it's, which it's is very very much uh, very much couched in a different way there oh, we go man, there we, we go. got there in the end <laughs> Tim, thank you so much for coming on here and talking about your book and for all your work, which has inspired us over the years and I'm sure loads of loads of Babel listeners as well. So ha- remind people for the 700th time what the book is called and how to get how to follow you and see what you're up to. And yeah. Yeah, that sort of stuff. Yeah, it's, it's been a pleasure. It's been uh, it's been definitely been uh, I think it's probably I would put it up there with the most enjoyable post growth conversation I've had. So thanks, guys. And, yeah, yeah. and it is called Post-Growth, Life After Capitalism. And it is available sometimes when it's not out of stock in, some, in all sorts of different places. Um, but you can find... That's a, that's a, nice, that's a nice little brag. Yeah. It's actually a point. Mm-hmm. It, no, it's actually it's been a source of deep anxiety to me, actually. But, um, you know, that's another story. I'm not going to talk about that. Uh, are you on the social medias and stuff like that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Tweet? I have, a, I have yeah. a Twitter handle, which, which is trying to prove, you know, it's going to my insecurity about being an economist because I'm called Prof Tim Jackson. And I have a website, which is called timjackson.com org.uk and if you do forward slash post growth you'll get a lot of detail about the book there as well so right so that is just about it for another episode of Babel. thank you very 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 much to the prof to tim jackson for writing the book for writing lots of books but also for kindly giving us his time to talk to us um, about all of this we yeah super grateful thank you thank you also to dave for you know me being dave and thank ah. you to uh, our usual stalwarts dicky moore for writing the music that begins ends and intertwinkles this podcast and arthur stovall who did the logo which is on our t-shirts and stuff t-shirts incidentally which you can buy from our website, which is www.sustainababble.fish. Oh, plug, plug in that. leaves a bit of a funny taste in the mouth after all that, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, still, yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, That's, that's mm. good growth, isn't it? T-shirt for... Good growth. De- yeah. <laughs> having, having the babble on you is, is good growth or something. Something. Um, we are on the internet if you want to tell us what you think about our views your views oh, you God, can... I watched oh. your brain I watched your brain like the clutch I could see the clutch crunching and then it suddenly kind of creaked into place I don't know where I'm coming or going at the moment if you enjoyed the show or did not enjoy it either way you can follow us on the Twitter we're on the Babble Wagon we're on the Facebook if you just search for Sustainababble or please do drop us an email to hello at sustainababble.fish we get quite a lot of emails we do read them all we do not necessarily reply to them all but we will read it so tell us what you think and please do remember this is a listener supported podcast so do chuck in a couple of quid at wobblywobblywobbly.patreon.com slash sustainababble to help with the running costs of the babble and to keep this show on the road and if you can't or won't do that that's fine but please at the very least go to your podcast medium of choice and give us a nice review it all helps 
And if you want to be a great person, you can do what Susan Kambalu did. Oh, I disapprove of your... disapprove of this. Yes, I disapprove of your... this, and I disapprove of you <laughs> using the Babble Twitter account as if it's your own Twitter account. How do you know it was me? It could have been. <laughs> but it wasn't me. <laughs> it could have been either one of us. <laughs> Susan took to Twitter to say, "Catching up with Babble episode 212 chips." Old's reference to resin was the best illusion of the orchestral theme. It made me laugh the most. I disagree with Dave, who thought it was bad. And I could have picked any tweet to read out this week, but I just happened upon that one. And and you can, you know, you can be like Susan if you tweet things like that. Susan, thank you for your views. Never listen to the show again. (laughs) Bye. Bye. (laughs)